Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you so much uh, that we have your word before us, speaking to us. And so, Father, we pray uh, that your Holy Spirit will be within us at work now as I speak these words and um, as we listen to your word. Lord, please help us to listen faithfully um, and allow the Spirit to be at work in us. Amen. Well, we're all a bit wary of bold claims, aren't we? I mean, I get pretty sceptical whenever I hear something that's a bit too good to be true. It can be a bit trivial, like when I drive into my favourite fast food restaurant and I'm greeted with these pictures of deliciously plump, juicy burgers or steak or whatever, and you pay your money, you're excited, you open it up and you're like, what? How did that get there? That's not what I ordered. But more seriously, we've all heard what happens when pharmaceuticals make bold claims as well. Promises of curing diseases, cancer, or permanent weight loss and effective pain relief. But in reality, all they deliver are perhaps a slimmer wallet, and at worst, terrible side effects or even death itself. See, I don't know about you, but when I hear really bold claims, I get sceptical. I take a step back. Let's wait and see and see how these claims work out themselves first. Well, today we arrive at Matthew 8, having just heard Jesus himself make some pretty bold claims. See, in his Sermon on the Mount, 
from chapters 5 to 7, Jesus speaks with incredible authority. He says he has come to fulfill the law of Moses and also the prophets. He throws out the way that the religious leaders were interpreting the law and he tells them what these laws actually mean. And then he has the audacity to tell them that anyone who lives on the words that he speaks, well, that man is wise. But the one who ignores Jesus, he's a fool. He won't even stand up. See, not since Moses or the prophets has anyone made such bold claims. And so all eyes are now on Jesus. What will be your first move, Jesus? And what kind of people will be the first to respond to him? And so we come to chapter 8, verse 1. He has just finished coming down from that very mountain from which he's preached on. And the crowds are hot on his heels. And then suddenly in verse 2, a man appears. See verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, first of all, if you're a leper, you're not just supposed to uh, come up to people. You're supposed to stay away from everyone else. Leprosy was this sort of uh, skin disease. It, It was very evident and it was very unpleasant. The Old Testament laws themselves, they said that if you had leprosy, you couldn't just uh, walk up to people. You couldn't walk up to the temple and worship God. You couldn't even be within the same camp, the same community of God's people. And this is because that anything that is associated with disease, that outwardly links to sin and death, as much as leprosy, well, it's classed as unclean. It has to be kept away from the holy and clean God. But more than that, this uncleanness is contagious. You touch a person with leprosy, even though you're clean yourself, and bam, suddenly you're both unclean. And yet, this leper, he dares to come close. He comes right up to Jesus and kneels down right before him. And you can almost imagine the crowds of people shuffling backwards uh, as as he draws near. What are you doing? But when this leper opens his mouth, he doesn't just ask Jesus a question. He makes a statement. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, so far in Matthew, we haven't heard about any of Jesus' public miracles yet. We've only heard Jesus preach a sermon, and that's it. But somehow... This leper has no doubt in his mind about Jesus' power. This leper gets that Jesus can make him clean. But what happens next is even more astonishing. Because Jesus reaches out and touches the man. I mean, hold on a second. You can't just touch a leper, right? You'll make yourself unclean too. I mean, you, Jesus, you've made yourself to be this holy man, a prophet even, by the way that you're speaking. You should know better than this, Jesus. But what happens? As Jesus says, I am willing, be clean, the leprosy leaves the man immediately. His skin would have gone from having ulcers and sores and flaking white skin perhaps, and then suddenly, without any warning, without any blemish, in an instant. 
And so not only did this man's uncleanness not transfer to Jesus, this man is actually clean himself, the skin no longer full of disease. And he can actually rejoin society properly. Now he can worship God again in the the temple. But Jesus has one thing to ask of him in verse 4. See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, I don't know about you, but doesn't it sound a bit odd that Jesus tells him not to tell anyone? I mean, isn't this the exact sort of thing that would validate Jesus' claims, his bold claims on the Sermon on the Mount? But Jesus' response here gives us a clue as to why Jesus really came. Because in Jesus' mind, performing this sort of miracle isn't exactly the thing that he wants to be known for. There's a deeper and more pressing reason for Jesus' ministry, and this will become a bit clearer later on. But Jesus also tells him to follow through with what is required for lepers to be declared clean in the law of Moses. See, in the law, if someone is no longer leprous, they must first be inspected by a priest, offer a sacrifice, and then only then are they officially clean. And so even though this man is already clean, the passage makes it very clear here, he's already clean, but Jesus tells him to go through the process anyway. And the reason that the text offers It's so that it will be a testimony to them. That is, it is proof that even as Jesus corrects and reinterprets the Old Testament law, he isn't throwing them out like some have accused him of doing. He still upholds the law because he has come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. So, is Jesus who he claims to be? We've seen Exhibit A. Jesus has healed by touch. And through this, now an outcast is cleansed and can re-enter society and worship again. And now we come to Exhibit B. Jesus has now entered the town of Capernaum. But this time, someone very different comes before Jesus. Someone who is also unclean, but for a very different reason. This man isn't a Jew. He isn't part of Abraham's family, God's holy people. But worse, he is a centurion, a soldier of the Roman Empire which had invaded Israel and were stamping their authority over them, demanding the payment of taxes. This man was the very symbol of the oppression of the nation of Israel. But he still comes nonetheless. And he too makes a simple statement, verse 6. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And so Jesus replies, shall I come and heal him? Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus makes no comment whatsoever about this man's heritage or what his position symbolizes for the nation of Israel? Just a simple, do you want me to come? Uh, Other translations beside the NIV don't even put it as a question. It's, I will come to you right now. And if that's not odd enough, then what the centurion says next is just incredible. Verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word 
and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. No, no, Jesus, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Can you imagine that? A centurion, a commander of maybe a hundred powerful soldiers, the one who has the power and authority of Rome behind him to rule over this tiny, insignificant people group. And he says to this Jewish man, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But he goes on. He understands the magnitude, the scope of Jesus' ability to heal. See, this centurion, this, he's a man of authority. His words carry power. His words can enact his will through those under his command. He doesn't need to do petty things himself. And so he has seen in Jesus. He has heard about Jesus, who he claims to be, maybe even a miracle or two. And he correctly understands that this man has authority. See, not just skill, not just power, he has authority. Authority is a difference between being there uh, and to heal a disease or having the authority to speak a simple word and cure. Jesus doesn't need to be physically present. His words have real power. This, and this centurion, he gets that. Now this is so astonishing that even Jesus himself is amazed in verse 10. I mean, the only thing we ever hear about Jesus being amazed at is how incredibly hard-hearted and stubborn his disciples are when they listen to God's word and, and refuse to understand and listen to his message of the gospel. And yet, Jesus here is amazed at this man's faith. And so now... Jesus turns to the crowds around him and says this from the second half of verse 10. Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This Gentile, this non-Jew, he gets Jesus. He gets Jesus like no one else in Israel has shown. Those who had all the Old Testament, those who should have been waiting for and, and, and waiting for the Christ to come and, and in power and authority. But when Jesus appears to Israel, they're baffled. But this, what Jesus says next, would have come as an utter shock to everyone in verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Hold on a second, Jesus. That was a big jump, wasn't it? I mean, you went from praising this centurion. I mean, that's fair enough, all right. But now suddenly it's escalated to talking about those who are not part of God's people altogether being in the kingdom. And worse, that those who are God's people, us, that's everyone around Jesus, we will all be thrown outside into darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What on earth is going on here? Well, for one thing, Jesus is saying that how people are responding to him now reflects whether or not they will be part of God's kingdom. 
See, even the manner in which people accept Jesus as a power and authority to heal uncleanness and diseases, even that shows whether or not they have the heart, the attitude of those people who will ultimately be part of God's final and great feast. And so what, it, what we see here is that while it looks like to us, this centurion, this leper, whilst they just come to receive healing from Jesus, that's what it looks like to us. But the way that they've done so, complete confidence, unheard of confidence, great humility, not presuming upon Jesus' grace. This attitude shows what kind of people are the ones who accept the king's rule. This snapshot reveals the heart of those who would be part of God's kingdom. It's a heart that comes purely by faith, by trusting completely in the power and authority of Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And having such faith completely overrides their position and status in life. Marginalized, socially alienated, unclean Jew, no worries. Come. A powerful, potentially wealthy soldier, a symbol of the oppression of God's people, you're welcome too. See, these two people represent the two extremes of the spectrum of those people who you normally think are unworthy of having no chance whatsoever of getting into God's kingdom. And yet, the Gospel writer Matthew, he puts these two religious outcasts right up front. The first two miracles which he records for us in his Gospel, these are the ones who Jesus will heal. And more than that, it is those who are like these two who will be standing with Jesus in the end. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus says people from all over the world, from the east to the west, people who have had nothing to do with God and his temple, have had nothing to do with Abraham, the father of the Jews, they will come streaming in, enjoy the blessings of God's banquet. And they are included because they recognize God's king. And so it makes sense then that the opposite is true for Israel. Those who already call themselves God's people. Because if they don't acknowledge Jesus as king, if despite Jesus' teaching, his miracles, casting out demons, if they see all these things predicted in their scriptures, which they hold firmly to, and they still don't believe, well, what does their ancestry actually count for? And so to them, here is a warning. Whilst those who do have faith in Jesus, they will join your forefathers, who you are so proud of, whilst you are going to be kicked out. And so please take note that Jesus is using very strong language here. But he clearly isn't saying that all of Israel will miss out. We know that because clearly a number of faithful Jews do put their faith in Jesus and persevere in their faith. But Jesus is using such strong language to shake them up. Wake up! Don't just sit there comfortably because you call your father Abraham. You call, your, you call Abraham your father. Take a look at these two, a leper, 
a Gentile and look at their faith. Be like them and receive the promises of God which you have waited so long for. Don't be like everyone else who has misjudged me and refused to follow me into my kingdom. But there's one final line in the story, isn't there? In verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. This final conclusion to the story, it's so short, so matter-of-fact, it's almost like a footnote. Oh, by the way, of course Jesus healed the centurion. Uh, But it wasn't going to be a surprise, was it? Of course the centurion's faith was well-placed. Of course the leper's faith was well-placed. See, Jesus' power is real. Uh, Did you notice how Jesus healed in these two cases? In the first instance, it was by a single touch and the leper was cleansed. In the second, not even Jesus' presence was needed. Healed from afar with a single word. And then we have Jesus' willingness to help. That's just as real. Verse 3, I am willing. Verse 7, he offers right away. Shall I come and heal him? Of course they were right. Jesus was both able and willing. And at the beginning, we asked the questions, question, all eyes are on Jesus. What will Jesus do? But the Gospel writer Matthew here, while showing that Jesus, yes, he does have power and authority to prove who he actually claims to be. But Matthew's focus is instead on the response of these men. See, that's what's important. Here are examples of those who respond rightly to Jesus. And I think here, it's crucial for us, for us to ask the same questions of ourselves. How are we responding to Jesus? See, as we read of his power to perform miracles, as we hear of his willingness to save, to show mercy and compassion, how are we responding? Are we happy to sit back comfortably, fill our minds with more stories, more facts about Jesus? Or are we coming to Jesus for help? To come to Jesus in prayer? In today's passage, see, both of these miracles involve physical healing of some, some kind. Is this primarily the kind of help that we're, we're to ask for? Or to put it another way, can we still expect Jesus to heal in the same way if only we had the same faith, enough faith, so to speak? Well, yes and no. Because on the one hand, of course Jesus still has all authority, power to heal. We still hear about miracles like these all the time in the name of Jesus. And we can definitely still ask God to heal. That hasn't changed. But should we always expect healing? Because something has changed between this story and where we sit today, hasn't it? What's changed? The cross has happened. The cross which tells us we have a far more urgent and serious problem. See, not just a physical disease, but a spiritual one. It's a disease called sin. And there's nothing like these men. There's nothing that we could have done about it by ourselves. 
Nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable before God. Nothing we can do to clean away all the greed, the lies, the selfish ambition, the refusal to love everyone that God has placed in our lives. The cross which tells us that as Jesus lay hanging there, that's where we were headed. Rejected, cursed by God. That's where we belong. So as real and as painful as physical sickness and suffering is, and it really is, I don't want to play that down, but it just can't compare to the darkness, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that awaits us if we remain in our sin. And so the cross shows us that the only solution is Jesus He experiences death and the curse of God on our behalf. He carries all our sin as he hangs there. Only Jesus can overcome the uncleanness of our sinful heart. Only Jesus can say the word and declare us forgiven, declare us clean. And so all these healings and cleansing that we've read about today... They're primarily a sign pointing to Christ's authority over everything. Jesus didn't come just to take care of the symptoms of physical disease and death, but to address the root cause, sin. Don't come to Jesus just for physical healing, but ask for full spiritual healing. The healing that lasts, the one that will end up giving us glorified bodies free from all sickness and disease for eternity. And so what this passage is driving home here is this attitude of the humble and confident trust in Jesus as Lord. That's what we've seen in these two examples, isn't it? With the same attitude of these unworthy men came asking for healing. And it's the same for us. We are unworthy people coming to ask God for spiritual cleansing, forgiveness. And so at this point, I want to speak to anyone who might not come to, have come to identify themselves as a follower of Jesus. Whether it's your first time at church or maybe you've been coming along for some time now, but you haven't made the commitment to call Jesus your King and Saviour. Because if anyone here thinks that they're unworthy to follow Jesus, you're not holy enough, you don't feel like you match up to what a Christian should look like, well, this passage tells us you're welcome. Have confidence in Jesus and ask Him for forgiveness and you will be accepted by God. Come, follow Jesus wherever you may be on this spectrum of uncleanness and unworthiness. Come, listen, continue to listen. Get to know Jesus and know the love and the forgiveness that he is holding out to you. But at the same time, there's also a very serious warning in this passage to those of us who do call ourselves followers of Christ. That is, some of us need to take heed if we find ourselves complacently thinking that we are part of God's kingdom but we're not actually relying on Jesus. Not really coming to him in humility for help. We might not look at our own ancestry and think we're okay because of that. But that doesn't mean the same sort of misguided confidence can't affect us either. Because we can so easily put our faith, our trust in other things for our sense of being right with God, can't we? 
I know in my own life, so often being busy with church can lead me away from trusting in God. I mean, how ironic is that? The more I've piled on leading Bible studies, doing workshops, writing sermons even, I get so busy, I get so focused on doing the work which I think makes God happy that I don't have time to pray anymore. No more confession of sin. No more asking Jesus to forgive me. And at those times, I need to tell myself, snap out of it. Have I put my trust in my good works to try and prove how holy I am rather than trust in the authority and power of Jesus' victory over sin in my life? But it can show in different ways, can't it? Maybe you've been to church most of your life and frankly, it's just getting a bit monotonous. Your relationship with God slowly becomes just doing the right things, just making sure you fit in. Go to church, attend Bible study, Make sure you do your five minutes of quiet time every night. Tick, tick, tick. Checklist complete. I've done my part now. Off to bed. Our trust no longer in Jesus, but on making sure we do the right chores for God. That just won't do. If this is you, then throw yourself back at Jesus' knees once again and ask him to powerfully make you clean again, to help you see your desperate need for Jesus, to put your confidence back in the blood he spilled for you on the cross. Because as we have seen, we can't afford to comfortably sit thinking that we're okay when in fact we've been drifting slowly away in our faith in Jesus. Instead, let us come trusting in Jesus, having full assurance that the one who has all authority, the one who is willing, he indeed has done it all for us. And then allowing our hearts to overflow with thankfulness and gratitude. That way of thinking transforms our whole lives, doesn't it? That we serve God, we share the good news of Jesus to our friends and colleagues. We do these things not because we have to, but because having been gripped by God's kindness, we, can't just con- we just can't contain our excitement to serve and to share about Him. But as we see God's love stretched out for us in front of us, we would delight in hearing God speak to us, to savor in spending time speaking to God in intimate prayer. And we know that when we fail, when we know that we've stuffed up, in the love and obedience that God demands and desires of us, then we can come back to Jesus, humble ourselves before him, ask for cleansing and spiritual healing, and have confidence that he is both able and willing to make you clean. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this picture before us of two men who consider themselves unworthy just as we are. And yet you, are, you chose to reveal that these are the, exactly the type of people having faith and complete trust in you and daring to come to you to ask for healing, that you would choose to heal these two. And so, Father, we pray that we would never uh, get to a point where we're too comfortable that we're okay, that we've arrived, but that we will continue uh, to keep trusting in Jesus for forgiveness uh, for every aspect of our lives as well. Amen.